Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On a dark, cold, wintry night... I like nothing more than encasing myself in the hide of a bear that I hunted using my uh, bear hands and then starting a fire using all my enemies before drinking a hot cup of revenge. Uh, But obviously, that's a bit tricky for some of you to do. And I am all about universal ideas that work for everyone. So instead, uh, if you've got a cold bum and seek some comfort for yourself or loved ones with cold bums, then why not head to British-Boxers.com for their range of luxury casual wear, what is all made ethically and by properly paying people and doing all the stuff that I wouldn't even have to mention if the world was a better place and everywhere was run by nice types. But it's not, which is why I must seek revenge. Sorry, but... As it is, uh, British Boxers are a great company to support, not just because they're lovely people, but also because their jammies are well nice, as are their nightshirts, undergarmentals, and they've even got a section called Kids and Pets, which obviously sells clothes for kids and pets, not actual. Luckily, by having ears of taste and listening to this podcast, you can get 15% off any purchases at British-Boxers.com by using the code PARPOLBRO15! So go do that right now. Or you could hunt a grizzly and destroy a cartel. But I mean, to be honest, it is a lot of work. It's quite tiring. Ethically, very dubious. Maybe just buy some nice PJs instead. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that actively pursues the idea of a smaller state. But by that I mean one made of Lego, as at least that would be vaguely constructive. I'm Tien and Duyeb, and this week as the Prime Minister and what happens if you put a foam mattress in a tree netting machine, Boris Johnson has been sent a questionnaire by the Met Police. I bet where it asks him to state sex, he's just put yes please. Have the Foreign Office warned UK nationals in Ukraine to leave the country now because of the imminent threat of war? Or is it that they're trying to save them from the possibility of bumping into the Foreign Secretary and several-time winner of Best Impression of a Bird that's repeatedly fallen out of its nest, Liz Truss? Yes, the concern about a Russian attack is obviously very scary for everyone there, but is it worse than having to spend hours and hours having Liz Truss demand you take her phone and keep taking pictures of her until there's that one that looks exactly like Margaret Thatcher? Which would, I suppose, be very easy, but then you realise the Foreign Secretary means while she was alive. You might question why, at the teetering edge of conflict, the British government would think the best person to quell the situation is one who likely responds to people saying Ukraine with, uh, don't you mean me-crane? 
Truss has had 700 photos taken of her since becoming Foreign Secretary, all on taxpayers' money, I should add. But I suppose it is in our best interests to have constant updates on what she looks like in order to avoid her. But maybe it was best for a government with several oligarch dark money connections to Russia to find a way to achieve the previously deemed unfeasible and make absolutely everyone feel sorry for the Russian government. I mean, yes, they are the aggressors in this situation. Yes, they do a lot of awful things. And yet after hearing about their meeting with Truss that they called a complete failure, I realise I wouldn't wish time with her idiocy on absolutely anyone. The Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, who looks like someone's sun-dried Ron Perlman, said that Truss lacks knowledge about basic geography and said their meeting was like a conversation between a mute and a deaf person. A statement that's oddly comforting to hear, as sometimes it's really nice knowing that our government aren't the most ablest one after all. One Russian tabloid said there could have been a fistfight if Truss was a man, which shows that once again Russia's sexism is one of the many factors that holds them back from being a progressive nation. And yet, the result of that meeting? Well, Lavrov said it was easier negotiating with Kiev than it was with Britain. And perhaps, just perhaps, war has been averted by showing the Russians that if they exert unnecessary force, they may have to deal with Liz Truss again. And that's like arguing with a lamppost and absolutely in no one's best interests. It could be that Liz Truss is actually our greatest foreign secretary ever by being so intolerable that she makes others unite with their enemies in sheer annoyance at her. And what we now need to do is persuade her that there are photo opportunities in many of the world's worst war zones and she'll have them sorted within minutes of landing and having to ask people exactly where she is and can they just focus on her good side. The UK have threatened to impose sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine, and while at the time of recording, President Vladimir Putin, the world's most dangerous uncooked egg, he denies this, he also wants to be assured that Ukraine won't join NATO. It is hard, isn't it? It's hard when someone you've grown up with suddenly decides to hang out with another military bloc. Happens to all of us, and the best thing to do, Vlad, is to just let them go their own way, and I'm sure you'll reconnect in middle-aged and realise it was for the best all along. Ukraine say they won't drop their ambition to join NATO as it's enshrined in their constitution. And I also heard you get a little badge and they do excellent sandwiches. Can this be solved with discussions? Well, not according to many Western politicians who seem to have already decided war is on the cards and it seems like they'd be very disappointed if it wasn't. Liz Truss is certain war could happen almost immediately, which I reckon she's just going to keep saying on the hour every hour until it does so that she can finally be right about something. British Defence Minister Ben Wallace, who's always been a very curious choice for the job when he looks like his entire body admitted defeat some time ago, he described the situation of having a whiff of Munich in the air. I'd really hope that he meant it smelled of breweries and perhaps everyone was trying to achieve peace through a very early Oktoberfest. But no, of course, Ben Wallace is a member of the British government and so can only ever mention Germany in reference to World War II and in this case there's nothing more tactful than telling a country who fought the Nazis they are like the Nazis when trying to get them to calm down. Liz Truss had told Russia to dial down the Cold War rhetoric and I wonder if that is because no one in government understands it and would much prefer it if it was in line with their only reference points of 1941 to 45 to make it all easier for them. It would of course be ideal for the UK if war broke out because then Johnson could pretend to go full Churchill which would mean he could keep letting people die for no reason but this time he'd allowed to be drunk while doing it and absolutely no one would mind. US intelligence, a phrase that often feels contradictory, says a Russian invasion could happen at any moment. But the German Chancellor and stunt double for energy vampire Colin Robinson, Olaf Scholz, is meeting the Ukrainian and Russian presidents in the hope of de-escalating tension. Sort of a shame he can't bring Liz Truss with him, isn't it? And just threaten to let her ask questions if they don't sort it out. I reckon we'd have guaranteed peace in several exasperated minutes. Johnson's going to hold a Cobra meeting on Tuesday, so by the time you've heard this, in order to discuss the UK's response to the situation in Ukraine. So I'm guessing he's got somewhere he really wants to avoid being at exactly the same time elsewhere. 
It's really funny hearing the UK Armed Forces Minister and wailing soft play pillar James Heapy talk about opportunities for compromise and diplomacy about Ukraine, as I wonder if he realises that any of those would make it a more optimistic situation than internal UK politics, which definitely currently have a whiff of Munich about them. Though to be fair by that, I do mean the smell of vast amounts of beer that's constantly emanating from Downing Street. Yet another picture of Boris Johnson next to a bottle of champagne at a number 10 event during lockdown has appeared in what many of the press have said was another bombshell photo. But they're wrong as that would mean it was surprising when really the headlines should have just been more of this shit or yet again exactly what you'd expect from this bunch of assholes. Johnson is currently being investigated by the police for what's now known as Partygate, a name that was also used for Number 10's front door during 2020 and 2021. By investigated, what I mean is that the Prime Minister was sent a questionnaire by the Met, which I think Boris Johnson probably will struggle with unless they have an option for each one that just gives an answer to a completely different question, says to wait for the inquiry to be published, or blames the last Labour government. Apparently, Johnson's defence for the so-called ABBA party, uh, which refers to the music that was played at that one, rather than how by the time we heard about it, we had all collectively said, here we go again. His defence is he was working in another room while the party was happening elsewhere in the Downing Street flat. The issue with that is that it's very hard enough to believe he does work on a normal working day, let alone when there's a party in the same building. If Johnson is found guilty of breaking lockdown rules, he could now receive a fixed penalty notice, which is similar to what you or I might get for speeding, which is every chance he was also doing, of a sort. Sorry, snort. It will also mean that he'd be a prime minister in office that had broken the law, you know, but not in an illegal war way, just in a way where 10 years ago he'd have been given an ASBO. Imagine being so shit at being prime minister, you can't even break the law in an impressive way that will have people for ages afterwards demanding that you go to jail. In yet another motion towards the UK being a banana republic that's constantly offset by our difficulties with exports, meaning that we'd have to opt for a homegrown vegetable like potato or turnip republic instead, Johnson is ultimately now in charge of who'll be in charge of prosecuting him. So it's not unreal to assume that he'll just fill in every section of the questionnaire with do you want the job or not. Yes, finally, schoolboy who saw a ghost by the stairs, Cresta Dick, has resigned just days after saying she wouldn't, but then I suppose she's used to having people change their stories to fit what works best. The decision came after London Mayor in your pocket, Sadiq Khan, said in an interview that Dick only had days or weeks to save her job, and to do that she would need a plan to convince him she could restore the trust of Londoners in the Met after the heaps and heaps of grim scandals about them. We can assume that she didn't have one of those plans and so legged it, which isn't very prime ministerial of her at all. It's also very risky of her to run from the job like that when that's exactly the sort of behaviour she'd have ordered her officers to open fire at. The Met Police Federation have been very angry about this and made a statement that they have no faith in Sadiq Khan, presumably because he hasn't been accused of any racism, misogyny, corruption or sexual harassment and therefore they just can't identify with him or assume he has their best interests at heart. There is now much beef between Sadiq Khan and the Home Secretary Priti Patel, a woman whose comfort telly is anything that says at the start has scenes that may make viewers feel uncomfortable. Patel wanted to leave Dick in place, <laughs> to reform the Met herself, because there is nothing more conservative than making an absolute state of things and then asking people to trust you to fix it. So, the Home Secretary felt blindsided by Khan giving Dick a push, <laughs> but insists she still wants to work with him to find a replacement, which means she's going to reduce the candidate list down to just the one that will let Johnson off everything and will no doubt have some sort of concerning history as head of a board of Bring Back Executions or at some point said in interviews that their favourite film is Birth of a Nation. And then Patel will probably ask Khan if he approves of them or not, he'll say no, she'll accuse him of being constructive. I joke, sort of. But documents leaked to the Times last week show that the Conservatives have been helping party donors apply for public roles in yet another story where the headlines could have just been, you'll never guess what, please read that in a sarcastic voice. 
set up under former Prime Minister and pink punctured bike tie David Cameron, an email of public appointment vacancies has been regularly sent out to lists of donors, because I suppose that way it'll make the government look less outstandingly bad if every single public body is being brought down from the inside by incompetent rich dickheads. But one Tory billionaire, Richard Armitage, who's proof that money can't stop you looking like you're in the midpoint of turning into a were-badger, he's publicly stated that Boris Johnson is now past the point of no return. Oh, someone didn't get a job, did they, Richard? Armitage says he finds the lack of honour in modern politics incredibly distressing. So says someone who's given more than £3 million to the Tories, but has now started donating to Labour instead in the hope that maybe they'll just get him a lovely job in the Register of Parks and Gardens. I mean, that's clearly what he's interested in, as he's earned his millions in hedge funds. It's not just former donors that are still unhappy with the Prime Minister. Former PM and the blank space you find underneath the dictionary definition of boring, John Major, has also said that Johnson and his staff broke the law and has condemned his big lies. But of course, Johnson said that Major's comments were also lies, and now it's only time before he says his dad is bigger than Major's and it's all going to kick off. Thing is, Boris Johnson's never given a shit if people say he lies, because he does, and I suppose it's always nice to be acknowledged for your strengths. In the same way, more pictures of parties that we know happened and he was at aren't likely to do anything until we see one of them maybe using the empty Nightingale hospitals to stage a rave while filing spare ventilators with nitrous oxide for the really big hits. And while I wish a fixed penalty notice would be the moment the Prime Minister's forced out of office, I can only imagine he's going to ask some donor to stump up the charges and swap it for a directorship of the Hydrographics office so all wave charts will now be in the shape of brand names. Yes, that is a real office, and yes, they're advertising for the position right now, so if you fling a few quid at the Tory party, you could have a lovely time looking at current affairs, but like, you know, current ones. So, it just means, like always, the Prime Minister is doing what he wants, and currently that's a very uninspiring reshuffle of the Cabinet Office. The latest changes involve swapping Jacob Rees-Mogg, who looks like an accident between charcoal toothpaste and a taxidemised rat, from being leader of the Commons to a new post of Brexit Opportunities Minister brilliant. A perfect job for a man who likes lying around doing nothing. Rees-Mogg said previously there'd be no visible Brexit benefits for 50 years, so I suppose this role is absolutely brilliant for him, as he's clearly already been around for, what, 200 or so? So what's another half decade for a man who's definitely somewhere in that black and white photo at the Overlook Hotel? Brexit opportunities, of course, might not mean benefits, and could be more about spending his time scouring all the small laws he can get rid of until he's finally allowed to feast on orphans without being a breach of international law. The new leader of the Commons in his place is Mark Spencer, a direct descendant of Marjorie the Trash Heap, and who shouldn't be anywhere near a promotion because he's currently under investigation over racism claims. Oh, wait, no, wait, maybe that is why he's been promoted. And I guess, you know, he had to have leader of the House of Commons because he's already a Home Secretary. Meanwhile, the absolute nothing of a man, Steve Barclay, the new number 10 chief of staff, but also still an MP, has said the government will take a step back from people's lives and pursue a smaller state. Yes, nothing like an island mentality within an island mentality. If they could somehow make the state so small it just revolves around number 10 and everything outside of it would then be a completely different country and isn't affected by them, I'd actually be all in. Especially if then we can go to war with them. While all of this is going on, Labour are doing what Labour do best and providing strong opposition to the real danger that this country faces. No, no, it's not the cost of living crisis. No, good try. Not that. No, um, no, wrong again. It's not the huge backlog of NHS cases or court cases. No, no, it's not the rising. No, no, good call. But it's not the rising pollution levels or the pesticides that kill bees being brought back or it's the collapse of our farming industry. It's not any of that. How are you missing the real one, right? The real big danger. Yeah, that's right. It's former Labour leader and inspiration for Uncle Travelling Matt, Jeremy Corbyn, who had 
having been suspended from the Parliamentary Labour Party and not being the leader for nearly two years now or having any say over policies or anything they do, that is the real threat that the Labour Party must destroy in order to save the country. It does make sense when I put it like that, doesn't it? I can't believe you missed it. Labour leader and the embodiment of the feeling you get when you've realised you've put a piece of flat pack furniture in the wrong way and you have to start it all over from the beginning, Keir Starmer, has blamed Jeremy Corbyn for being wrong about NATO and being supportive of Russia. Which, as you well know, the former leader did do that during the Salisbury attacks when he said, I'm just going to quote it here for your benefit, the Russian authorities must be held to account on the basis of evidence Labour is no supporter of the Putin regime. Ugh, I can't believe he stand Putin like that. I mean, why didn't he just marry him? What dickhead wants evidence before making decisions? Not former director of public prosecutions Keir Starmer. That's who. He's not like that. No wonder Starmer doesn't want to be associated with that view of Russia. Or how else will he get the sort of sweet oligarch donor laundered money the Tories get so he can stop the party going bankrupt and end up in government? It does look like the party are going to deselect Corbyn as an MP and run another candidate in the next election for North Islington, which goes against the wishes of the local party group and will mean Jeremy Corbyn is likely to run as an independent, which is pretty risky to Labour, because then they'll have to somehow blame an independent MP that has nothing to do with them anymore for still them being shit at everything over two years later. Still, I suppose nothing says they're a British government in waiting, like always having scapegoats that aren't themselves. Come on, Starmer, just move on, mate. Get over it. It is super boring. Do your own thing. Be your own person. I bet Keir Starmer is the sort of person who'd start a first date by constantly trying to prove he's not like their last boyfriend before even asking what they're interested in. Meanwhile, within the party, Labour MP for Bermondsey and Old Southwark and Pugsley Adams, Neil Coyle, has been suspended from the party for making racist comments about a British Chinese reporter in the House of Commons bar. Silly Neil. If only he'd done that at Party HQ instead, they'd have just stuck it in a report that had never come out and he could have been promoted by now. In other news, the last remaining Covid rules in England could be removed within just a few weeks' time in an attempt by the Prime Minister to make everyone too ill to notice he's still not fucked off. The rules for self-isolation, if you have a positive test, are meant to stay in place till March the 24th, but Johnson says if the trends remain positive, which is probably the wrong word for it, then it could go a month earlier than that. This decision doesn't seem to be following any science, but I guess neither of any of the decisions for the last few years, and it's becoming more and more clear the only thing Johnson was following was a drunken conga line or an ABBA dance routine. Hospitalizations are dropping, but infection rates are still very high and indeed rising again, and there's a new subvariant of Omicron called BA2, sounding like a sequel to Mr. T, that is apparently even more transmissible, though I bet it won't go on a plane. I wonder if Johnson is thinking either it's going to go all right and everyone will be pleased that it's over and Covid will disappear, but worst case scenario is that it kicks off again and there's a lockdown, meaning that he won't be able to leave number 10 because it won't be allowed. And plus, if he did, he'd miss all the parties. Education Minister Nadim Zawahi, whose face upside down is still a face. Go on, try it, go on. Yeah, see? Weird. He is introducing guidance this week to, as he says, root out activist teachers and ensure only balanced views are presented in classrooms. So I guess that'll mean teachers will have to read stories like The Twits and provide a counter-argument that actually being an unpleasant slob with disgusting views and really awful jokes could be a good thing and help you end up as Prime Minister. Zawahi said that children can form their own independent opinions, which is true, because when my daughter was two, she saw Boris Johnson on TV during a Covid press conference and of her own accord said, Ugh, horrid Boris. Children generally have an understanding of what's right or wrong and fairness, so there's every chance that by letting them embrace that even more, they'll grow up to be really fucking super angry that Zawahi had horses warmer than them during winter and that their parents had to pay for it. 
Hey, 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 Parpol Broads. Uh, I am just here wondering if I should run for the next Met Police Commissioner. Um, I'm not remotely qualified. Uh, I haven't been in the police. But I reckon the hat would suit me, and I'd, I've got some great policies. Um, I'd insist every officer had to greet people by saying hello, 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 and then go from there. Um, I'd also scrap, stop, and search, but I would bring in search and stop, which is where you can only stop someone after you've completely searched them, which would make it obviously really hard, unless you were a trained pickpocket, which I guess would then mean they'd have to arrest themselves. But hey, it's still better than some of the current shit those police get up to and also they could sing songs from Oliver Twist while they did it so I'm pretty certain it's, it's better I'd also get rid of the car sirens and they'd have to instead make the noise themselves out of the window because I just think that would be more fun yeah look, I'm not sure they'd let me do the job to be honest but I suppose if you're not in it you can't win it can you Oh, oof, listeners, I've had a weird old weekend. Um, sad loss of a, a friend, uh, Paul Byrne, on Friday. Um, he, he, he probably, you might not know, but if you have enjoyed any stand-up comedy in the last however many years, um, he'll have probably had an influence on it. He incredibly... Oh, I mean, one of the funniest people I've ever known, really, and uh, hugely key to my comedy being what it is, even if, as he said to me loads and loads of times, he couldn't have given the slightest shit about politics. Um, but he was uh, very key to the, to the way I find things funny, the way I structure jokes, and uh, didn't... Yeah, it was a bit of a shock uh, that he passed away on Friday, not me for six. So, um, even talk, I can't talk about it properly now, it's going to make me well up. Um, but hopefully there'll be a very big send-off for him. He was sort of... Uh, very very loved by the comedy industry and uh oh it's horrible isn't it middle ages shit for this i it's sort of in my, in my 30s nobody nobody selfishly just died like that um and uh and now in the 40s it's all it's all that sort of thing it's very mean so yeah I, i'm a bit shaken um feeling a bit sort of uh, upset about that also being just sort of laughing at lovely lovely memories uh and i churned out a blog for my brain about it which was nicely cathartic it is odd how it can do that um, and then I watched the Super Bowl halftime show today with Snoop Dre and Co. And it cheered me up so much that I may have to watch it on loop for the rest of the week. There was a tweet earlier that said um, there's footage of Snoop Dogg smoking a joint before his gig. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'd be disappointed if there wasn't, isn't that? Like, isn't that sort of the point of him? Anyway, um, on, a, on a happier note, I'm going I'm to stop talking about that. But I just sort of you know where my head was at when I was writing this. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm sure you sure you uh, will have read a lot about Paul uh, if you if you follow any comedians. Oh God. Um, on a happier note, uh, I was on Radio Force's Today program at the very early hour of 6:50 a.m. this morning. Um, the producer got me to do a sound test like they always do, and he asked me what I'd had for breakfast, and I coughed out, and nothing, not even a coffee. It's too early. Uh, it wasn't. He wasn't remotely sympathetic enough about it, which I know he'd been up even earlier, but not on. Um, anyway, I, was, I wasn't I was talking about anything particularly uh, exciting. I was talking about type 1 diabetes, uh, my type 1 diabetes, and a specific drug called dapiglifosin, which, Jesus, that is really hard to say at 6.50am in the morning. And um, it's being taken off the market for type 1 diabetics. You know, it's not going to be on prescriptions because it affects an incredibly tiny amount of diabetics who take it. Um, and AstraZeneca who make it don't want it to get a black triangle warning on the packet as it might lose the money um, if GPs then don't prescribe it to other people with other conditions because they're warned off by the black triangle. Anyway, it's pathetic. It's basically entirely to do with money rather than the difference it makes to people's lives. It's made a massive difference to my diabetic control. And so on today's programme, I chatted to Justin Webb for a very brief few minutes about it. So yeah, it wasn't politics or even comedy. And all in my head, I was just thinking, all I want to do is say, like, criticise the fact you often platform really shit views on this and you don't question Conservative MPs properly. Um, but I was on there for the, the JDRF, the Juvenile diabetes research fund and I just didn't didn't want to ruin it for them by suddenly shouting rude things at Justin Webb and then leaving I'll do it next time everyone I promise I'm sorry if I let you down um I always get annoyed with radio interviews uh 
there's the day before the producer often rings you up and asks loads and loads of questions and then you chat for ages and then on the day I get all ready with my sort of 30 minutes of answers and because of time they just ask you three things and then you're off air and you're like no I had loads more I've got loads more type 1 diabetic chat to give come on bastards uh, hopefully though it will help the campaign to make AstraZeneca reverse the decision I feel like they've got all cocky now because their vaccines all worked and everything now they're like fuck all the other drugs but it's not the way guys it's not the way um, I also took the uh, the kid to her first protest on Saturday which is exciting it was the People's Assembly one against the rise in the cost of living and it was uh, okay I guess I mean probably quite a good one to take her to um, very sadly not not very busy um, and I think uh, yeah, probably because there were ones happening all around the country so it wasn't big one big united one um, also I mean this is a sticking point for me as, as someone that I don't protest as often as I should and I don't organise them so it's not you know who, who am I to complain? But there were so many different groups raising awarenesses about different, all very valid issues, some of them to do with uh, the issue in Yemen, some were to do with various sort of uh, politics and, uh, you know, policies, um, immigration policies and, and so on. But th- the thing is, is right now that protest was meant to be about the rise of costs and as a single issue that is going to affect so many people kind of across politics that I think if you just focused on that you could have drawn a lot more people in um, that's that's I'm, who, am I, who am I saying that to you I'm saying that to, to you guys the listeners who are not also not organising these events completely useless I should probably uh, write to someone uh, that actually does these things um, anyway my daughter found it very fun for about 30 minutes uh, looking at everyone's placards and hearing some of the speeches and then uh, we had to find a playground uh, that is that is how long she lasted for hopefully next time uh, we're at a protest there'll be more drumming and she'll be well into it I'm sure it's going to be the first of well until it's illegal in a few months anyway um, there was a woman that came up and spoke to us and insisted that protests do nothing and what we need is a general strike which I agree with but I'm thinking been thinking sort of a lot more about it and, and, and if there's sort of some more inventive ways to do that that might be more fun um, and I thought rather than we call it a general strike I wonder if we could just do like a national hide like we all just hide for a week like everyone we would just hide in a cupboard or even just sort of close your curtains and, and hide and then everything would collapse and they wouldn't know who to blame it on because there'd be no one around everyone would be hiding and then whoever stays hidden the longest I guess could be Prime Minister although worryingly Johnson is actually very good at that so probably still win yeah look I'll, th- I'll think it I'll, I'll sort of think it through there's got to be a way to make it work um, cheers loads this week to Daniel, Freya and James for the Kofi donations which have actually definitely gone towards coffee this week um, this isn't a paid ad right I, haven't, I mean if they want to pay me for this then, then they can um, it's just because I like them but I buy coffee from um, a Cardiff coffee place called Hardlines for a proper ace and they seem like really nice ethical types and I would definitely recommend if you like buying coffee get it from there plus uh, they've got a really great mascot that's like a mug with a, a brilliant face and to be honest that's all I need sometimes in my life um, if you too want to aid my coffee wait hang on would that mean he's got a mug a mug mug a mug a mug, mug. A face mug a mug face anyway if you too want to aid my coffee needs then please do buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and of course this podcast is still vaguely sponsored by British Boxers so if you get things from that ace lot and use the parpolbro15 code like in the advert at the top of the show you get money off and I get some dosh too plus you also get nice pants so that's like a double win and you're going to want to be in nice pants when hiding for a week and yes I will do a new British Boxers advert for it soon sorry everyone Right, on this week's show, I am chatting with James Plunkett, author of End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It. Yes, it's about fixing things and has actually been cheering me up reading his book. No, not as much as the halftime show, but look, as long I will always love Snoop and Dre, but they don't have valid ideas of overhauling the welfare system. And Dre isn't even a proper doctor, so you, you, I didn't see him step up during the pandemic. So, I mean, look, you have to be realistic sometimes, don't you? 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the big problems I've always had with people who say, oh, the good old days, let's get things like how they were before is that things before included terrible sanitation, no TV, Vikings and dragons. Yeah, okay, maybe I don't read enough history, but I have seen it on the telly, so it must be true. And I wouldn't have seen it on the telly if I'd lived in the good old days. So I think, basically, that speaks for itself. Um, Thing is, though, is we still have lots of systems in place that we had in the good old days. Um, If you're looking at the ones that were, you know, obviously a little way after the Vikings and dragons. But, for example, lots of our welfare system was created more than 70 years ago now, even though... In today's day and age, people are living longer, more support issues are being recognised, and apparently you can now just pay nurses with clapping, which is really handy. Our working hours were devised for a time when you couldn't do work from home, as that would require a huge textile machine in your living room, which is often inconvenient, and your boss couldn't email you at 10pm asking where that opinion piece is on how maybe the Titanic wouldn't have sunk if they'd all just been more positive about it. And many of our rules and regulations for everything from tax to trade was all designed before people like creepy morph suit Jeff Bezos realised you could fire people for needing the toilet and discovered actually everyone does want menial household items in cardboard boxes 12 times too big for them thrown at their door with a force that only anger can create on the very same day that they bought it. But as is always the problem, how do you bring in these changes when you have a system of government that was, in its current state, created in 1832? Takes place in a building from 1016 and is currently dominated by people who look to the 1922 group for all its big decisions. I don't think anyone would argue that we're in need of new ideas, or at least radically different ones, to keep up with this world, where you can now spend your entire day telling people on the internet how much you hate them, and that is a valid job that you get paid for doing. Yes, really, it's called being the culture minister. Bonkers. The question is always, how do we do this, these big changes, without leaving people behind? What ideas would actually work when so many are instantly rubbished as soon as they're mentioned? And more importantly, will I have to retrain in cyber? Because I used to watch Doctor Who, and I really don't think I'd find one of those helmets very comfortable. This week, I spoke to James Plunkett. James has worked in public policy for over a decade, in everywhere from Number 10 itself to think tanks, and he's currently the Executive Director of Advice and Advocacy at Citizens Advice. 
He's been researching the effects of technology on society for quite some time now and just how we govern the future. And his recent book, End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It, is a manifesto of how we could reform society and politics so, you know, it actually works for our current day and age, rather than the weird non-specific pastime that many politicians and newspapers like to refer to. End State is the first book on politics that I've read in ages that has actually made me really optimistic about us surviving the current state of things. And it's also a really handy reminder that so much of the crap that is said and done that keeps us embedded in the current broken system, it's cyclical. That's happened before, time and time again. And that is great and a real relief to know that that's happened before and then we get through it and and, and things are better. But then also you realise that that means that when we do get a new system, we'll end up at a point where that system is too old for the life that we're in and then nothing happens and it's rubbish again and that is bad. But then, of course, we'd come out of that one and then it would be good again. Oh, humans are ridiculous. Anyway, I was so pleased that James had time to chat, so I do hope you enjoy. Here is James. Hi, James. Thank you so much for being on the podcast this week. Your book is absolutely fantastic. It's been, it's given me optimism, which I think is a very rare thing uh, in these times. I, as listeners to the podcast know, I mostly just scream about the bleakness of, <laughs> of everything. And reading your book has made me go, oh my goodness, there are possible solutions. Um, and I think that the first thing I wanted to ask you, this might seem like a slightly uh, a droll question, I think, because as uh, many of the people listening would probably know that we're in need of a vast kind of political and social change. Um, it's, it's, it feels slightly obvious, but I wondered if you could kind of explain why it's really evident now that the systems we have in place aren't suitable for where we are t- technology-wise. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, I think I, I talk about this in the book a bit. So the, the first moment when the kind of penny dropped for me was a story I tell in the book when I was back working in Number 10. This was back in 2008. Um, and I had this... Uh, slightly odd meeting with um, the last minute pulled into a meeting last minute with Gordon Brown and um, Tim Berners-Lee who's the kind of guy who was, is widely credited with inventing the internet if that can be a thing that someone did um, and the reason it sort of got that got the ball rolling for me that kind of ended with the book was um, this sense that um, the internet economy if you like just works just functions differently to the way government functions they sort of think in different ways. And I, I remember sitting in this meeting hearing this conversation between Gordon Brown on the one hand, sort of the arch politician who sort of thought in terms of you know, the, the, the big levers of government, the kind of 20th century state. And then Tim Berners-Lee, who was talking very much in the logic of the internet, he was talking about networks, platforms, peer-to-peer, um, big data. Um, and I just left with this slightly uneasy feeling. I, at the time, I couldn't quite place it, but... Um, I guess what I've realized over the next 10 years, and, and this led to the book, was the, the logic, if you like, the logic of the internet economy is just fundamentally different to the logic of, of 20th century government, and they just don't connect. And I, I think what we've seen in the subsequent 10 years, which have not gone very well from a sort of um, public policy perspective, has been that playing out, that sense that kind of the problems that are emerging, gig economy, platform monopolies, and so on, um, just have a different logic to the way the state thinks about thinks about the way it should solve problems. That's right. I mean, also in in in, in that timescale since then, it, it's just the speed with which things have developed and the speed with which things have changed has been quite incredible. I mean, I think about then we wouldn't have had uh, Amazon on the scale, we wouldn't have had Facebook on the scale that it was, and so, so much of the way in just our, our days work now is completely different to you know, the yeah. late late 2000s, which is bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. I remember looking back and I think Facebook was four years old at the time of that meeting. And um, 
Uh, and as you say, these the newer problems, new problems that are emerging. And I, and I just have this sense that governments are looking at these problems slightly horrified, thinking that we don't even know what to do with this. So things like the gig economy, people talk a lot about job insecurity for Uber drivers and you know, the whole welfare system um, and the way we think about sick pay, for example, um, social insurance. All these things were designed for the way jobs used to work they, and they just don't function when they come into contact with this new reality. Um, the same with the big platforms of Google and Facebook. Again, competition policy sort of can't deal with them. So there's this sense that this sort of a new type of problem has emerged and we don't quite know what to do with it yet. Has the, uh, the pandemic been a, a kind of catalyst in, in making people realise that things could be done differently? Because I'm, I'm aware that it's something that you don't quite mention in your book, because uh, as you point out rightly in the book, this is, this is something that's been happening for quite a while, uh, you know, and something that obviously you noticed over a decade ago, but, but the, the pandemic really changed how we worked. It really changed how we thought of our immediate area and our, and our travel situation. Um, but also I think it's made a lot of people hit burnout a lot quicker and, and realise, you know, issues with workloads. So do you think that's been a really, a pivotal point in kind of changing how we view our future um or do you think we'd have we'd have hit that anyway yeah i think what do i i think we would have hit it anyway but it sped things up and i think i I think a crisis is a kind of accelerant and i think um in in some ways just some quite obvious ways the pandemic has just sped up changes like you know remote working for example as you say the rise of worries about burnout which have triggered things like debates about the four-day week it's just a really interesting example of how the pandemic has just sort of we probably would have got there anyway, but that's kind of sped us up by 10 or 20 years. Um, but the other thing I think that's interesting is, is the role that a crisis can play in, in social change. And I, I was very interested in the book. I talk about the, just the way the Second World War, which is the kind of go-to example. You know, after the Second World War, there was this sense that, you know, people had seen the war play out. They'd seen governments do these extraordinary things in the winning of the war. And they kind of said, well, if you can do that, then why can't you solve problems like poverty or ill health? Why, why can't you turn the same kind of um, energy and ingenuity to solve those problems? And I, I think there is some of that with the pandemic that people are saying, yeah, well, what extraordinary response, extraordinary kind of economic response and development of vaccines, a sort of medical response. So how, how on earth can we not solve some of these other big problems? And there's a sense almost of... Um, of hope almost followed the Second World War. And I, I, I sort of feel like there's some sense of things can be different that is, that is hopefully going to emerge now as well. See, that's what I meant. I really like that you've got the optimism about. I suppose my concern is I sort of see that we're post-pandemic and now they, you know, the, the general message is we've got to pay all that back rather than we need to yeah. change things <laughs> and, and, and make it better. And I, and I, I did well, it's very, of... very similar after the Second World War. I mean, you know, people said, obviously after the Second World War, there was a big argument about the NHS. Can we afford the NHS now? And at the time, public debt to GDP ratio was two, it was 200% um, debt was as compared to GDP, much higher than it is now. And um, some people said, we can't afford this. this. This is the worst possible time to create the NHS. And other people said, this is the best. This is precisely when we need these new systems. Um, and luckily those people won and, and, and they, 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 won out the, they won out the argument. It's, it's, it's the pandemic. I mean, it was very interesting in your in your book when you kind of point out all the other big moments. We had the sort of industrial revolution and, and, you know, the Second World War. And I mean, this seems like a really silly question because the pandemic was an absolutely huge global event. But is that in enough of a kind of crisis to, to change things? My, my big worries, and I realise that we're speaking uh, on a day when Ukraine is all kicking off. Um, <laughs> you know, is it, do we need a war? I don't want to, that's an awful thing to ask. And I hope we don't have one. But, you know, is it, does it, do we need a, a, an event on an even bigger scale 
for for us to see things differently do, you know did the pandemic change enough yeah. do you think yeah i i think that's a really difficult question and i so i am um, the metaphor i use um uh, is is a, of a mudslide so i think you know, uh, what I mean is social change kind of progresses a bit like a mudslide. So that what happens is you get this kind of period over which the mud, the kind of anger and the problems build up and they build up and build up and you can all see them building up. That's quite clear for everyone to see and everyone can see things kind of this is looking a bit dodgy. You know, these kind of these problems are really building up here and it's starting to kind of tower above us. The thing that is really hard to predict is is the rainstorm kind of how much rain will it take for the mudslide to suddenly be triggered? And that's the thing that changes. And suddenly this kind of mountain of mud that's built up is unleashed, is sort of liquefied by a, by a rainstorm. And it's a bit like an avalanche is another kind of good metaphor that you, you, know, you see the snow that's built up. It's super hard to predict what will be the trigger, what will be the thing that causes it to go. And then when it does go, it's kind of, it really starts to move and change unlocks. And then, um, people said after 2008 oh that here we go here's the rainstorm everything's going to change now and it didn't and i think it would be foolish probably to say the pandemic is going to be the rainstorm but the thing that's inevitable is it has to give way at some point it, it can't just keep building up i think that's the key the key insight yeah it's i mean i have to say obviously part of that question was me asking for my own sort of constant fear <laughs> like, is it, have we got something else due because i think we've i feel like we've all had enough um <laughs> i feel like we need the change now um i mean one, one of the things i found fascinating um i found many things fascinating about you but, but what the, you know that this um that potentially some of the technological developments may have almost had more impact on our lives than government policy in it some of the changes that we've had in the way that we the way that we shop the way that we use uh, the internet just might be more detrimental to us in in some elements than than politics. Is that is that the case? Do you think that you know? Because I, I'm I'm definitely someone as as listeners know. I blame a lot of things on politics. Um, but it is interesting, and even just sort of reading your section on how you know websites tell you there's only 38 people or 38 people already booked this and, and how that's a lie and I suddenly realized oh my goodness so much of my life is dictated by quickly buying things and that's probably taking away my money far quicker than certain yeah, policies yeah, yeah. yeah I think I, I think the changes are more profound than we realize and there's these moments where you suddenly sort of sit up and think you know, I saw some data the other day it said we're now spending four hours a day on our phones um and even more on screen time generally and um the way that when our kind of it's almost like our interaction with reality is mediated through these big platforms, as you say, like all of our shopping, all of our social interaction is decided or kind of shaped by the, what the algorithm thinks we should be doing, which I talk about in the book. And many of these companies are essentially monopolies in the same way that the railways were monopolies in the in the sort of late eight, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. So they have this huge power and, and a huge incentive to manipulate our behaviour. And I think it's it's one of those, it's the kind of boil a frog thing that those changes have crept up on us and we they've been gradual week by week. But when you step back, that is a profound change in the way our lives play out. And now with you know, so much of our work even is happens um, for many people, at least via Zoom or again, via these big platforms. Um, I think that's huge. I mean, I, I do think I'm not... Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not. I don't blame technology. If that makes sense, I think mm. it's our failure to govern technology. Uh, again, I have this phrase in the book where I say, um, you know, in the labour market, for example, it, the problem isn't Uber. The problem is Uber ungoverned. And if we if we could govern these new technologies in the right way, they've they've got huge potential. Um, but we've we failed to do that. So it's kind of, in a way, it's on us. Um, and we've got to work out how to govern these new technologies so that they 
they take us to a better future what is the you know why are we so slow to to catch up with with these things why are we so slow to kind of put these things together i mean i, I know that there's there's often an issue especially in uh sort of britain it, you know that there's a kind of fear of change oddly not when it comes to brexit but generally with everything else there's a, there's a sort of fear of change and a uh you know when it comes to sort of voting for parties and uh you know obviously i, I feel like that might have changed slightly in the last few years but is is that still the reason why we're not bringing in things you know are the reasons why we're not tackling these issues are are they all ideological or is it um and i'm going to be very cynical here is it that the system that we've got still works for certain people in certain big companies i think i mean i I think this is a big another big question i think psychology plays a big role and so i'm not not to discard you know the more sort of um power kind of analysis and so on for, for sure there are big vested interests and there's kind of people that defend the status quo for sure um but i think there's something interesting about you know we just find it hard to realize and to recognize that things have changed um there's this phrase in um in the history of science that science proceeds one funeral at a time with the idea being that you know you need the old scientists to die out until the new before the new scientists come through and they have different ways of seeing the world and you get that at these big revolutionary moments in the history of science like the Copernican revolution where it just it, it, people couldn't see the world in the new way until the old scientists died out and the new the new kind of new generations came through and I sometimes say that um politics almost precedes one retirement at a time or you know, as, as kind of old civil servants retire and old politicians retire and a new generation comes through that that grew up in this new environment and sees the world differently and I, I think that um there's a surprising amount of that going on because one reason I say that is it's you know it's fascinating. Even big companies find it incredibly hard to change. You look at the number of companies that go bankrupt because you know they know they know full well they need to modernize, they need to have digital technologies, they need to change the way they do things. Companies like Kodak, you know, Kodak famously invented a digital camera and and didn't think it would be a big deal, so they kind of stuck with film cameras. Um, and just so many of these big companies that we all know are going to go bankrupt. We can watch it happen. They they know it, it's going to happen. And they, they can't bring themselves to change, to modernise, to even though they know that's what they need to do to stay alive. So I think, um, yeah, absolutely, power plays a big role and there's the vested interests thing going on. But um, quite a lot of it is just we, we find change really difficult. We find it super hard to accept that. You know, with the rise of digital digital technology, we've got we're living in a different world, and it takes us quite a long time to accept that. I think. Is it also? I mean, and, and I've got to be very careful here because I don't want to sort of come across uh, as as ageist. But the, you know, obviously, a lot of our politics is dictated by a certain voting bracket, a certain voting age bracket in Britain, in particular, and tend to be sort of retirees, homeowning retirees. Um, I think it was sort of discussed in the last election that I think the Conservatives could have won alone on the votes of people over 65 with a home um, that, that voted them. Obviously, I should say there are people in that age bracket didn't vote for them. But the, you know, is that also an issue? If our, if our politics are being dictated for a group of people who aren't encountering these work changes and these life changes maybe in the way that, that younger groups are having to because that's just how life works now, is, does that mean there's also maybe less of an incentive to, to, to tackle them? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is a huge issue. And I, I actually I talk about this a bit in the book that um and this is this is an area where I'm a bit less optimistic or sort of concerned, I suppose. So because this this the demographic changes you mentioned are huge. And one of the things that's 
uh, quite scary in a way is the um if you if you combine the the aging of societies with voting preference the fact that older people are more likely to turn out and vote if you look at um a number of big democracies particularly japan is at the forefront of this um the average age the, the age of the average voter is approaching 60 and so we're getting quite close to the point where the average person going into the voting booth is is either retired or is nearing retirement um and that's a that's a big deal that as you say you know age does not determine your vote entirely there's huge variation you know older people vote for many different parties as do younger people but nonetheless we do know from the evidence that older people are more likely to vote for more generous pensions uh, we know that in older districts in america for example um people vote for less generous spending on education and more generous spending on older people's benefits even kind of per older person so this kind of sense that just as just as we need politics to look to the future on issues like climate change and technology we've got an electorate that is um is aging and is more likely to look uh, slightly more backwards and is is less likely to be up to some of these issues obviously um attitudes towards climate change vary a lot by age and it's younger people on on average again that are more likely to want action so um the, i mean the the big the big place this leads us which is really difficult territory is kind of how do you give young people more of a, a say in the future um and in the book i talk about this probably the most radical idea i explore in the book um is the idea of proxy votes for parents where you the idea that you every parent should get an extra vote to cast on behalf of their 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 children <laughs> um which is a slightly scary idea but it's one of those ideas that the first time you hear it you think that's completely bonkers that that could never work but it's been explored in various countries including Japan and um i yeah i think we've got to find a way to to recognize the the, the importance of children and the importance of future generations in the, in the big decisions that we make that is i mean i i i did i read that bit and i thought it I was a bit terrified by the idea. <laughs> I say that I, I I I approve of the way my parents vote, but still, it it still concerns me. Um, <laughs> I know. I do think that the, the argument for like big arguments at Christmas, like that would just yeah. be a family argument. That is the best argument against. I think that you idea definitely I split some families up with that decision very very quickly. Yeah. There'd be a lot of people divorcing their parents. I think there'd be an increase in uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in that business. Definitely. I mean, the more radical boys. idea that um, there's a David Runciman, who's um, like a kind of mm. very well respected, um, you know, um, professor. Um, he's he's recommended just giving children the vote from the age of six. So there are more radical ideas out there. Personally, that scares me even more. Well, I, I speak to a lot of kids with our uh, comedy club for kids shows that we do, and on a, honestly, a lot of their ideas for the future are far better than ones I hear. Right? From I mean, they, could so they make I, a bigger mess of it than we have? Yeah. I think I think they do a fantastic job. I'd, I'd happily hand that over. I mean, it, that was one of the things I, I constantly found interesting in your book is is. A lot of your new, and I'd, I'll be careful because I don't mean this to sound sort of detrimental, like you've just, your new ideas aren't new ideas, but a lot of the ideas that you propose are things that we have seen in some shape before. You know, you talk about the an idea of a new approved GI or a sort of GI bill, but that allows for uh, adult education, adults to be re-educated to kind of... Uh, go a lot you know learn how to use new technology and adapt to it and talk about the universal basic income which is an idea that we've had on this podcast come up a number of times it's you know what does it take to kind of it's an idea that's been floating for so long uh what does it take to kind of get it there because i think that was that's was one of the things i read all these and go this is so brilliant that this possibility is there and this is definitely something that we need to put in place but getting it there is a is is a hurdle yeah. isn't it yeah and i I, the thing I got, I think the thing I got most interested in writing the book, I just find this fascinating. There's this um, 
strange thing that happens in politics repeatedly over history that you get ideas that go from seeming completely impossible and people say they are unaffordable, their radicalism, their idealism, um, and they go to being accepted as a new common sense. And, you know, it happened with uh, obviously kind of things like the NHS, the idea of free public education, people said was a radical idea, unaffordable uh, public sewers at the time in, in the 1850s when London was filling up with with sewage and the River Thames was you know, smelled so bad that people were sort of asphyxiating at their, at their in their homes. People said public sewers were um, an act of pernicious government overreach and that this was kind of the thin end of the wedge. And if we had public sewage systems, this would be a disaster. Um, banning child labour, again, people said would, would ruin the manufacturing industry in Britain. So all these ideas that were dismissed as you know, uh, kind of crazy radicalism and idealism or unaffordable, then just went over the course of decades to be accepted. And I, it prompts a really, I just think, a really interesting question of there are definitely ideas out there right now as we speak that are in the same category that we currently think of as idealistic, unaffordable, and, and they will go, they will, they will move that same journey. They'll travel that same journey. And I kind of, this is one of the, one of the kind of things that runs through the book is I went looking for those ideas and the four day week, I think is an interesting example, a basic income you mentioned. Um, and I, yeah, that process by which ideas kind of go from seeming impossible to seeming like common sense is fascinating. And it's kind of playing out right now. I think we can see it happening. It's, it's really comforting to know that all those, uh, the, the same kind of, um, arguments happened in the past about things like, I mean, that one of the particular that i found sort of weirdly comforting reading about was the minimum wage and the, the criticism mm. all these companies will fail and collapse if we have the minimum wage and we we had it and it, and it came and went and it didn't barely yeah. affected anyone and i mean obviously you know it wasn't a living wage but it, it was sort of fascinating to see that we we had that hysteria time and time again yeah. and um and then it, and it moves so quickly. Although, I mean, there's a strange thing about politics that it feels grim kind of day by day. It feels like no progress is made every week. You think, God, another grim week. When you zoom out, for some reason, there is progress. And I think the minimum wage is a great example. You know, in the late 90s, the Conservatives were staunchly opposed to the minimum wage. As you say, everyone said it would be you know, mass unemployment was kind of the argument from employers. Um, turned out to be nonsense, turned out, yeah, if anything, it boosted productivity um, and certainly boosted pay for the lowest paid people. And now the Conservatives have become the biggest fans of the minimum wage and have raised the minimum wage actually more boldly than Labour, I think, were, were planning to do. It's fascinating how that turned around. So, um, you know, and that's over 20 years. So you get these amazing moments where change suddenly suddenly breaks through. I, I mean, actually, I want to ask you about... Uh about how we how we sort of one of the things that you're talking about in your substack at the moment about how we plan for the future but a more personal question actually how do you zoom out how do you do that how do you because the the hope that you have in your book is is really infectious and lovely to read and as i said not something i often have is 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 part of the issue that we we are getting daily hourly news you know i, I think our absorption of news is possibly different we're seeing that politics as you say is quite grim at the moment constantly how how are you able to zoom out is this just Having worked in it, have you got have you have you got a sort of zen like <laughs> ability to move away? <laughs> no, I think <laughs> I think I did. I stopped reading the news. I think is one answer. So I and I, I think I would say read history. I, I find um, the thing that turned me optimistic because when I started to to the work on the book, um, 
I didn't plan for it to be an optimistic book. I didn't see that coming. And I, the moment it turned optimistic for me, I talk about this in the in the opening that um, I went to this secondhand bookshop on the Charing Cross Road in in London, and um, it, I found this book just kind of randomly on a shelf about the Industrial Revolution. And it was a kind of collection of diaries and newspaper stories from the time. So it was all kind of original materials. Um, and I sat and read it and it was, um, I just had this amazing sense that kind of uh, things can get better. And there was so much similarity in the in the kind of mood, the vibe, if you like, at that time of people feeling like, oh my God, the, you know, the world is coming to an end. These mounting problems at the time of child labour, of sewage in the streets, you know, kind of how are we ever going to solve these and these big ideas that were at the time were still emerging and still were quite radical. And I, so I think that's, I, it drew me into history and made me a bit of a history buff. And I think um, it's odd, actually. I, I, I would say if you can kind of try not to read, try not to read the news and listen to the news in particular and kind of watch the news um, and try to read more history. And it just gives you a sense that, A, that just things, things have got a lot better. You know, actually, we're quite good at making things better when you zoom out. Um, but be that sense of similarity and kind of, you know, we've been here before and, and, you know, it was, it was messy. Don't get me wrong. It was kind of, it took a long time. Things got worse before they get better. And it was, it was, it was really messy at points, but kind of we got through it and we made things better in the end is quite an uplifting thought, I think. Yeah, it really is. I, it was uh, incredible to see how cyclical it is. And, and even to the extent of sort of, you talk about, you know, that the backlash to change was nationalism, which we're, we're seeing an increase of and, and, mm a lot of political elements and it's then really pleasing to know that yeah things got things got through and, and things changed and and predominantly for the better so yeah it's a really nice message to read definitely definitely yeah and I think um you know we all say we all will feel like things are grim <laughs> but if you say to someone kind of when would you most like to be born what year would you most like to be born in I mean, you'd have to be a bit strange to pick, you know, the 16th century or the sort of the early 18th century. I mean, as much as we think things are grim, <laughs> yeah. Sort of almost regardless of who you are and where you are, probably your best bet is to be born now. As as yeah. odd as that sounds, because it feels like things are grim, right? But it, things are better than <laughs> things are better than they were. It's always my confusion when people sort of talk about the good old days, or you know, let's you know, we want it back like it was before. And you think what when you had TB, or when you had you know. When you, people are dumping their urine in the street i don't think you really want that you know <laughs> completely yeah and even on even on like you know even on difficult kind of topics in terms of social justice in terms of gay rights and so on you know, like huge progress and in some ways surprisingly rapid progress and mm. again huge progress still to be made and huge problems for, for sure and people are right to be um to be angry and certainly you know, my optimism is not a kind of um we can all sit back and relax and things will get better optimism it's it's very much you've got to keep fighting that's why that's why things get better um and i kind of say that it's sort of anger plus anger plus hope equals change and you, you, you've got to have both um so it's not that sort of techno utopian you know, silicon valley will make us all better off um sense it's kind of you've got to fight for it but i think if when you know when we do you know things do get better it's and i think it's also what, what I, I liked about the book is that you break down each and every process that, that would help these uh, help areas of society, help areas of politics and, and what's needed to be implemented in order for, for those to work. Um, and I think this is it's a very big question to, to always finish on. But, I, you know, wh where on earth do we begin, James, with a system that needs so it feels like we need so many changes. Um, and also often, you know, our politics is only planned for a year or so, maybe five years ahead. We don't seem to have very long term planning in our politics. So how do you, you know, how, how do you plan for 
further changes of how we live and work down the line? Where, where do we start with that? Yeah, that's a big question. I think, um, I suppose I'd say, I think there's more, the, the, the work the work of change is kind of broader than we sometimes think. So sometimes our, the typical answer to that will be kind of political campaigning or vote, you know, vote for a certain party or that kind of thing. And I think actually like, there's more roles. I kind of talk about this kind of ragtag army of, of people who are kind of making change happen. And it includes, you know, it includes comedians, it includes um, writers, artists, it includes different types of folk who are kind of advocating for new ideas. It even includes things like, you know, the kind of conversations we have with our friends in the pub or with our family at Christmas dinner, kind of um, the kind of process by which these new ideas come to be accepted the four-day week, for example, the fact that that's just, as we speak, kind of coming to be seen as something that might be possible um, and is being tried out by companies. Um, so I think actually it's not just about Westminster politics. You, know, you don't have to pick up a placard or kind of go into the voting booth or kind of you know, enter formal politics. There's a lot more you can do than that. And I think I'm a kind of ideas person. I think um, a lot of this plays out in conversation and argument and debate and 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 even art. And um, so I think kind of there's lots of roles to play, I would say. So kind of, sort of pick, pick the role that suits you best, I think. So you've, you've made me feel useful for doing this podcast, which I'm very... Even grateful. comedians. Yeah, <laughs> even <laughs> I like that. Even It needs to be in a sort of... <laughs> right at the end, and even comedians, if they try really hard. <laughs> I love it. Um, fantastic. Well, thank you, James. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, apart from yourself and your book and, and your Substack. Um, the question I ask all the guests on here with just the hope of furthering good information and good resources really is, is, you know, who are the writers, the websites, the books that, that you recommend? Who are the people that you go to when, um, let's say, being optimistic about the future and just how we can kind of build a world yeah. that, that can deal with all these changes? Yeah, um, so many. I mean, the best thing about writing a book is you get to read so many, so many brilliant books and as you do it. Um, I'd say a couple I'll recommend. So, um, I read recently a brilliant book uh, called The Utopians uh, by a writer called Anna Nima. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of case study of six utopian experiments over the last hundred years. So it's called The Utopians, uh, six attempts to build the perfect society. Really interesting on just the role that kind of visions of utopia play in, in social change. Um, and then the other, the other book that is kind of um, doing the rounds at the moment is a book by um, Azim Azar called Exponential. Um, and Azim's got a brilliant um, sort of mailing list blog called Exponential as well, The Exponential View. Um, it's just brilliant on sharing kind of stories about how technology is changing, how, how quickly things are changing. And it's got um, quite a nice kind of optimistic optimistic vibe. Again, that change doesn't happen naturally without us trying, but it's kind of uh, change is possible and it's quite an optimistic read. So I recommend that as well. How great was that? Wasn't it so nice to have an almost actually positive chat? Almost, kind of. Um, do go read James's book. It's called End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How to Fix It. And rather unfortunately, I'm not sure I should divulge this, but um, considering how often Amazon is mentioned as not a force for good in the book, um, it is also the best site to buy it for price and data, so says James. So uh, it, I will pop that link in the pod blurb. Maybe throw a few quid at an indie bookshop after you do it just to help. Um, James can be found on Twitter at James T. Plunkett. That's two T's at the end. And his substack is at endstate.substack.com. And his current series on how we govern the future is is a really fascinating read too. Um, I've been really, really enjoying that. So do check that out.
Uh, who next? What next? I'm trying to get someone on the show to talk candidly about Ukraine, but much like when I tried to get someone last year about Afghanistan, um, everyone that would be good to chat to is very busy with actual awful shit right now, so they don't have time to chat. Um, let me know who your thoughts on who and what you'd like to hear are, and I shall furiously email them with requests to let me question them unprofessionally for this show. Do that by dropping me a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And that is it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Um, Appreciation Nation for spending your limited airtime on this show. Yes, I am incredibly popular with the youth because of my ever-cool chat. Why do you ask? If you like nay tolerate this podcast, then why not mention it in passing to other folks so that they too might need new ways to use up time and perhaps this could be it. Spread the word, donate to the Patreon or Kofi if you've got spare pennies after paying for your heating bills and why not give the show a review on one of the endless podcast platforms that exist. Appreciation stations to Acast, my brother, Last Skeptic and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when the British government decides to post Liz Truss on the border between Ukraine and Russia with a series of outfits and three different photographers. And everyone just gets bored and gives up. The UK is held as a global peacekeeper until Boris Johnson visits to claim victory, does a racist Eastern European accent and then immediately starts World War Three. Bye. This week's show was brought to you by the Liz Trust Photo Filter. Add to absolutely any pic you take and it'll make you look like you're completely confused as to why you're there, but in a series of fancy outfits. Anywhere, anytime, anyhow, the Liz Trust Filter will give everyone the impression you just got on a private flight and assumed someone else would work out where it was going. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.